0: Hello, everyone. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. And this is Last Week in the Church, Crux's weekly video program, which is relentlessly devoted to bringing you the very finest in stale news about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you already know because it's already happened. On this week's program, we've got The Vatican's prime minister publicly corrects the boss. What are we to make of it? Italy's landlocked, ultra-Catholic, sovereign city-state votes to legalize abortion. And no, I'm not talking about the Vatican. On the World Day of migrants and refugees, they face new hardships pretty much every place. Why a peace pope could get behind a Europe armed to the teeth. And finally, crazily impossible papal trips, we'd still love to see Pope Francis make. That's what's waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, uh, well listen, happy Monday to you. Thanks for spending part of your Monday with us. Uh, Hope you had a great weekend. Mine, to be honest with you, was bittersweet. I'm a fan of La Roma, one of the two big professional soccer teams here in the city of Rome. Uh, the other is Lazio, which is named for the surrounding region. And last night was the big game between Roma and Lazio. Uh, for a frame of reference, if you're American, think Michigan Ohio State, think Yankees Red Sox. If you're Canadian, think maybe Montreal Toronto uh, in the NHL. If you're from some other place, I'm sure you can come up with your own, you know, uh, cultural analog. Uh, but in any event, uh, this, is, this is intense, uh, it's the game, everybody circles on their calendars every year. And in the end, Roma lost 3-2 to Hayda Delazio. On the other hand, uh, we had a great time because we had a bunch of people over, including a couple from across the street. Uh, the guy now sells high-end real estate, but he grew up going to Olympic Stadium here in Rome to watch Roma play. He actually went to all the away games too, like a Grateful Dead fan, Uh, until he and his wife started having kids. And it was just great to be around people who had such passion. By the way, knowing this kind of stuff uh, is important for putting the Vatican in its proper context because the Vatican is here, (laughs) remember. uh, It's physically located in the city of Rome. I guarantee you, in the Vatican this morning, people are not talking about, I don't know what, women priests or who's for or against Pope Francis or any of the stuff you might think they're talking about. Uh, In reality, most of them probably came in this morning talking about last night's game. And knowing stuff like that uh, is important to understanding what makes the Vatican tick. Uh, All right, Uh, so we begin this week, speaking of what makes the Vatican tick, with an odd little story that bubbled to the surface this past week uh, that involves Pope Francis and his top deputy, Italian Cardinal Pietro Paterlini, who is the Vatican Secretary of State, And in the Vatican system, which is kind of a president-prime minister system, that is, the president is the head of state, the prime minister is the head of government, the guy who actually makes the trains run on time on a day-to-day basis, Uh, he, Peroline, is that guy. Uh, The secretary of state is always that guy. Uh, And so what happened is this. Uh, When Pope Francis was in Slovakia recently, Uh, He did what he always does on these foreign trips. He sat down with his fellow Jesuits in that place. So he had a conversation with his fellow Jesuits in Slovakia. And later, Cibleta Cattolica, the official Jesuit-edited journal uh, here in Rome, published a transcript of that conversation. Among other things, Pope Francis told the Jesuits that when he had colon surgery over the summer, there were some people— He left it to be understood, some people in the Vatican, uh, who hoped he died, he would die from that surgery, and that there were actually, there was actually a meeting of people to start planning the next conclave, that is the election of a successor to Pope Francis. Then he said, but you know, thank God I came through it fine and you know, uh, I'm good to go. Uh, now, Lean, uh, who was attending uh, an event here in Rome last week in which he had been asked to speak about the founding vision of Europe, the European Union, on the sidelines of that was approached by reporters who asked him about these comments from Pope Francis, that there were people in the Vatican who wanted him dead and that there was a meeting to prepare the next conclave. Parolin said, uh, the gist of it was, uh, I'm not aware uh, of any such climate. Uh, of people wanting the Pope dead, don't know anything about it. Uh, I've never experienced that. Uh, I didn't, I, I, so far as I know, there were no such meetings, never heard about them. So maybe Francis knows something I don't. But so far as I know, uh, none of that happened. Now, that's a little weird, right? I mean, look, in any system, if, say, a vice president corrects the president, breaks with the president in public, uh, if a senior vice president of a company publicly contradicts a CEO, I mean, that's going to be a story. It's, it, it's odd, right? Uh, it's out of character. Uh, that's especially true in the Vatican, of course. It is extremely rare for a cardinal secretary of state to publicly contradict a pope. So the question is, what do we make of all this? Uh, now, it probably won't surprise you to hear uh, that on Italian blogs, in the Italian media, Uh, at least the Catholic sphere of that, Uh, for the last week, people have talked about basically nothing else. Um, What I'm going to do is just give you the four leading hypotheses and let you make up your own mind. So one hypothesis is this, and under the law of Occam's razor, it's probably the simplest. And the hypothesis is this. Look, when Pope Francis meets with his fellow Jesuits, uh, you know, I, he, he kids around. Uh, it's A lot of what he says is tongue-in-cheek. It's meant to be funny, right, uh, to liven things up. It's not really meant to be taken seriously. Uh, and so he was basically uh, just kidding, according to this theory. Uh, now, Paraline was approached by a reporter, took the question seriously, and gave a serious answer. And so this is nothing more than one guy kidding around and another guy trying to be serious. And we're all, frankly, making far too much out of it. Okay, that's one theory. Second theory, there genuinely is an information gap between the two men. Uh, that is, Francis was informed about a meeting that Paroline simply didn't know about, that he wasn't invited to because nobody would imagine that he would take part in it. Uh, Not all that unusual, right? I mean, there are plenty of times when the President of the United States knows things the Vice President doesn't. Um, And so this would also fall under the heading really of no big deal, unless you want to argue that it's problematic that there is an information gap between the Pope and his top deputy. All right. Now, third hypothesis uh, is that Parolin was consciously trying to put a little distance between himself and Pope Francis that they are different men uh, and they have different instincts. From the beginning, it has been clear that even though Pope Francis says all the time that he never thinks about his critics and pays no attention to them, for a guy who claims to pay no attention to his critics, he talks about them a lot. I mean, honestly, it sometimes seems that Pope Francis has a kind of minor league Nixonian (laughs) enemies list uh, in his head uh, of people he thinks are against him. Now, Paroline is notoriously a measured, sober, restrained kind of guy who just doesn't think in terms of enemies. Uh, And so maybe this is just that basic personality difference breaking through to the surface. Okay, so that's a third possibility. Now, a fourth, which is far more cynical uh, and therefore very popular in certain Italian circles, is that even if nobody else is thinking about the next conclave, Paroline is. And this was kind of an opening shot. Uh, he was sending a signal uh, to his fellow cardinals uh, that, "Look, you know that I would continue most of Pope Francis's agenda. I support the policies, but uh, I am a more cautious, sober, fair, safe, if you want the word, kind of guy. And I, you know, probably there are a lot of cardinals who like most of what Pope Francis is doing, but could do without some of the turbulence. Uh, who might find that very attractive. As I say, you decide. Uh, all right, second story. Italy's landlocked, Catholic, sovereign city-state votes to legalize abortion. The reference here is not to the Vatican, uh, but to the independent Republic of San Marino. What's that you say? You've never heard of San Marino? Well, that's all right. Uh, San Marino uh, is in a small, independent enclave, a sovereign state, Under international law, uh, that is located in Italy just east of Florence. It has actually been a sovereign state since the fourth century AD. Uh, It it traces its origins to an independent monastic community that was founded uh, where San Marino now is in the year 301 AD, making it a, a tie with Armenia for the title of the world's oldest Christian state also claims to be the world's oldest uh, republic and the world's oldest constitutional republic. Whatever. Uh, The point is, it is a sovereign state. Uh, And up to this point, like the other ultra-Catholic enclaves of Italy, Malta, the Vatican City State, Andorra, uh, abortion has been completely legal. Uh, in San Marino. In Italy, it's basically been legal under certain circumstances since 1978. Uh, So finally, this year, 2021, uh, San Marino, in response to popular demand, staged a referendum uh, as to whether abortion ought to be legalized. No surprise that the bishop of San Marino, and yes, there is only one, uh, was dead set against it, campaigned against it, uh, nonetheless, 70% of the fewer than 100,000 uh, citizens of the Republic of San Marino uh, voted in favor of the decriminalization uh, of abortion in, during the first trimester in virtually all circumstances, later than that uh, in, the case, uh, in case of threats to the health, safety, life uh, of the mother. Uh, Now, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's just a drop in the bucket, but it does indicate uh, that, listen, this was one of the world's most Catholic states in terms of percentage of population, virtually 100%. Uh, What it indicates uh, is that the church, especially in Western Europe, is simply in a new reality where it is not going to set the social, cultural, or political tone uh, in the way it used to. Uh, It has to learn to navigate uh, in a cultural milieu that maybe as it isn't actively hostile to the church's traditional moral teaching, but certainly can't be relied upon to impose it through force of law. Church is going to have to learn to win these arguments, not through legislatures uh, and executive orders, but through persuasion, through reaching hearts and minds. Uh, And that, of course, is a long-term project. All right. Uh, Sunday was the World Day of Migrants and Refugees, the 107th such day, if you're counting. Uh, Pope Francis marked it by delivering his noontime Angelus Address, devoting it to migrants and refugees, calling upon the world to not close doors to their hope. So an open doors plea from the Pope. Now, bear in mind, uh, this happened as uh, in Europe. Uh, Five migrants died over the weekend, Uh, five Belarusian migrants died uh, as Poland, Latvia, and Lithuania uh, are deporting migrants from Belarus who are seeking to enter Europe, fleeing, of course, the regime of President Alexander Lubechenko. Uh, It happened as uh, settlements by migrants, uh, Venezuelan migrants, were attacked in the nation of Chile. Tens of thousands of Venezuelans have been fleeing the ongoing political, economic, social apocalypse uh, in Venezuela under President Nicolás Maduro, and Chileans, quite honestly, are getting tired uh, of having to foot the bill for their care, Uh, and so angry Chileans uh, attacked these settlements. No one was killed, so far as we know, but there were injuries. And of course, in the United States, we have the, dramatic situ- the ongoing dramatic situation on the border between Texas and, uh, Texas and Mexico with migrants from Haiti uh, who are attempting to reach the United States, who are being warehoused under an international bridge, uh, and who are being rapidly deported back to Haiti under the terms of Title 42, which is a codicil of American law, that provides for expedited deportations without due process of law in some cases. More than 150 organizations, most of them Catholic, have appealed uh, to the Biden administration to repeal Title 42. So far, no action uh, on that request remains to be seen. All of this by way of making the point that the fate of migrants and refugees is both, one of the great points of pride of the Francis papacy, he has become uh, undoubtedly the chaplain, the, the most recognized international spiritual leader trying to issue this cri de corps, this cry of conscience for the fate of migrants and refugees. Uh, and yet it is also one of the greatest frustrations of his papacy as well, because try as he might, behavior on the ground simply won't line up with his moral prescriptions. Uh, All right, fourth, why a peace pope could get behind a Europe arm to the teeth. So, when the United States recently announced this new alliance, with this new pact with the United Kingdom and Australia, part of which is to give Australia nuclear submarines, uh, it was probably the most important realignment of the pieces on the global geopolitical chessboard Since the Warsaw Pact and and NATO, Uh, it it basically marked the birth of a new world, uh, a new bipolar world, if you like, uh, in which you've got China uh, as one pole and its allies and the Anglo-Saxon world, uh, that is the United States, the UK and Australia, uh, forming the other pole. Now, the obvious question that leaves hanging is what happens to Europe? Now, in some ways, this is a welcome development uh, for the Vatican, even though Pyroline just expressed deep reservations about this new AUKUS alliance. But uh, in some ways, the Vatican has always wanted Europe to go its own way, uh, to represent a kind of third force in global affairs, one the Vatican hopes, more marked by Catholic social teaching uh, and by the kind of humanitarian and communitarian instincts that are part of Catholic culture and tradition. Now, uh, European leaders, uh, in response to this AUKUS alliance, uh, one of the things they've called for is the development of a genuine European defense force, that is, a real European army. Uh, President Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Parliament, uh recently issued such a call basically saying what is the point of having all this military technology if we never use it which is a legitimate question and so there is some prospect right now uh that the the the, the pillars of the European project basically Germany France Italy uh along with the other 27 members of the EU might be inclined to get serious about putting together a genuine European military that would be empowered to pursue perceived European interests around the world. Let me give you an example. Suppose the situation in Afghanistan under the Taliban for women just becomes completely impossible, completely outrageous. The United States just got out. We're not going back in. Certainly, Russia and China aren't gonna do it. Who's gonna do it? Well, if Europe had a genuine military at its disposal, that might be a mission that would be perceived to align with European interests. Among other things, if the situation were better in general in Afghanistan, it might stop the flow of Afghan refugees into Europe. And now, it would be a great irony, wouldn't it, if Pope Francis became a great champion of this because from the beginning of his papacy, he's been about peace. Uh, He denounces the arms trade all the time. He thinks of himself as a peace pope. And yet, this might be one instance of rearmament If it facilitated a Europe capable of lending meaning and consequence to the church's social agenda, in some rough sense, uh, it might be one instance of rearmament that a peace pope could really get behind. Final. So, Pope Francis just got back from Hungary and Slovakia. There is now a lot of talk about where he's going next. Uh, There are rumors. That before the end of the year, uh, he might go to Cyprus and Greece. Maybe package that with a stop in Malta. Uh, you know, next year there is talk that he wants to go to South Sudan in the company of Archbishop Justin Welby of Canterbury. And you know, other trips are are on the kind of plausible near-term horizon as well. But let's forget all of that because that's about stuff that he actually might do. Let's just for fun consider a few trips that. Absolutely, positively, never going to happen, okay? Just completely beyond the realm of, you know, any scintilla of plausibility. Nevertheless, would be fun, okay? It's fun to think about anyway. Uh, What am I talking about? Okay, let me give you an example. Uh, Suppose the Pope were to go to the island nation of Tristan da Cunha. Where is that? What is that, you ask? Uh, frankly, I'd never heard of it before thinking about this topic either, uh, but you know how Pope Francis is a pope of the peripheries, loves to go to places that are like forgotten about and have never had papal trips before? Tristan da Cunha is the most isolated and remote inhabited place on earth. It is an island in the, or it's actually an archipelago, a group of islands in the Pacific. Uh, it is 1,700 miles From the coast of South Africa. It is 2,500 miles from the coast of Argentina. The only way to get there is by spending a week on a shipping vessel. There are only 234 souls who live on the island. There is a Catholic church there, but there is no resident priest. Listen, if Francis wanted to go to the peripheries, this is it, baby, right? But come on, let me just cut to the chase. What is the number one ridiculously impossible? papal trip we would love to see, that we would pay real money to see? Come on, you know the answer. Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago! Can you imagine Pope Francis jetting off to spend a weekend with former President Donald Trump? uh, Watching them ride around on a golf cart, right? Uh, Or, I don't know, take an afternoon cordial on the course as they discuss the state of the world and what it means to be a Christian politician, immigration policy, the environment, war and peace. I mean, the idea of watching the Donald and Pope Francis spend the weekend together in this Shangri-La that Trump has constructed in a Mar-a-Lago. I mean, I will tell you this. You could package this as a pay-per-view event And you could retire the Vatican's entire deficit, not just its annual operating deficit, but its pension deficit, too, in one 48-hour span. Now, that, of course, would require the Donald agreeing to give up a share uh, of the TV rights, and that's a kind of iffy proposition. But, I mean, come on. Never going to happen. But you want to talk about must-see TV? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Uh, all right, you can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is CruxNow.com. Again, CruxNow.com. If you like last week in the church, and come on, why wouldn't you? Please spend this next week going onto the social media platform of your choice. Uh, give us a thumbs up, give us a like, give us a retweet, write a nice review of us someplace. We want to get in front of as many eyeballs as possible, and that is how we grow. Please, over the next week, Stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. We will talk to you again next Monday.